Welcome back to the show that tells you, you are a quantum computer with free will instantiated by delocalized clouds of electrons. My name is Justin Riddle, and this is episode 14 of the Quantum Consciousness series. In today's episode, we'll be diving into the mechanism by which a quantum computer could be created in our biology. And by the end of today's episode, we'll ask the question, is quantum computation essential to the evolution of life on this planet? If you like what you hear today, then please like the video, subscribe to the channel, leave a comment below, or for the audio listener, write a review. Join me inside the mystery of numbers. Come and huff a metaphysical See how concepts become objects and then become quantum. Join us for an episode of quantum consciousness. In the previous episode, I introduced you to microtubules. And we talked about how microtubules are essential to a lot of the biological functions in a cell. And we proposed the idea that microtubules serve as sort of a central executive hub within a cell, and they allow for the cell to take in information, integrate it across the cell, and then broadcast a action plan or sort of guide the rest of the cell in how to respond to predators, to food sources, to possible mates, etc. And I introduced the idea that if the microtubules were somehow a quantum computer, this would provide a fundamental speed up to how the cell could rapidly integrate information beyond just these localized digital processes, which would need to diffuse across the cell in a more or less uh, chaotic function. And so if there were to be a quantum computer in microtubules, it would give a massive processing speed upgrade to cellular life, and it would provide a quick way to integrate information within a central hub and broadcast it and sort of guide behavior within a cell. And the microtubules are fundamentally mysterious because they are a single protein repeated in these spirals, suggesting that they might be some sort of programmable bit or quantum bit slash qubit. But then the question remains, how does this actually come about in biology? We're told that quantum mechanics is really subtle and only happens at this microscopic scale. So are we jumping the gun in saying that we could find macroscopic superpositions in our biology? So the point of today's episode is to walk through how you would get macroscopic superpositions in biology, and this is really diving deep into the Penrose-Hameroff model of orchestrated objective reduction. So to start off, I want to frame the problem here. Why are quantum superpositions difficult to achieve in nature? And the reason is, is that superpositions are fundamental splits in space-time geometry. You have let's say an electron, which can be in state A or state B, and it can't be in both of these states simultaneously. And so what we know from physics experiments is that this electron will go into a probability distribution or a wave function of being in both of these places simultaneously. And then upon measurement or collapse of the wave function, it's going to choose one of these two space-time geometries to then occupy. 
And now there's two possible ways proposed that a superposed electron could choose these different options. One option is called subjective reduction, and the other option is objective reduction. So in subjective reduction, we introduce a, another system into our environment, or another system acts as the environment, and when the electron interacts with that other system, they measure each other and collapse, and then the electron is forced to pick one thing or another. This is really evident in the double slit experiment where the electron chooses between going through the slit on the left or going through the slit on the right. And then when you add uh, a measuring device, let's say an atom that's poised to interact with that electron by, let's say, absorbing it or, or something, then when it interacts with that atom sitting at the slit, it's going to measure the electron and now there's no longer a wave function or a probability distribution. It either interacted with that atom or it did not. And so that reduces the wave function and makes it go away. What are some of the problems with this? Well, this is subjectively based on the atom. So if I'm an electron and the atom is here, it is applying its measurement upon me. So let's say I'm an electron and I'm computing my future actions. So I'm this naturally um, occurring quantum computation within me and I am getting measured by the atom. Now that atom is imposing a collapse upon me. Whether or not I'm ready to collapse, it, it doesn't matter. That atom is making a measurement and so the measurement occurs. And so this is inherently a chaotic process. And furthermore, there's multiple dimensions to me as an electron. I have a position and I have some momentum, but the atom could be asking me, where are you? But I'm computing all this interesting information about my momentum, and then when it asks me where I am, it doesn't even care about my momentum calculations that I've been running. So even the question that gets asked, the decision on what question gets asked, also is chaotic in that it's sort of outside of the control of the electron. So we call this a environmental collapse or a um, subjective reduction. And so one of the problems of these chaotic collapses is that there's something called the second law of thermodynamics, and this suggests that entropy or chaos is constantly increasing. And so as these chaotic environmental interactions occur, they generate a lot of chaos. And a good example is dropping an egg on the ground. It splatters. It's really difficult to put that egg back together. However, when we look out in the world and when we look at biological life, there's a clear evolution towards increasing complexity and increasing order. And so within a very uh, chaotic framing of just having these subjective environmental interactions, it's difficult to imagine a way that order would increase in time. And so maybe there are other ways that wave functions could collapse that would be less chaotic and that would actually um, increase order into the future. So the other proposed collapse by Roger Penrose is objective reduction. So if you have this electron, which is splitting into multiple possible space-time geometries, 
but it's in the vacuum of space and there's nothing to measure it, what then happens? It will go and evolve and the superposition is present. Does it never collapse ever? Or is there some objective threshold that it reaches where it self-collapses? And so Roger Penrose proposes that electrons left in a vacuum will indeed have a reduction of the wave function, but it won't be subjectively based on any environmental force, but it will occur internally and self-collapse once it reaches some threshold. What is the threshold? Well, he argues that these different space-time geometries or different, you know, worlds that, that cannot co-occur, those have a gravitational effect on each other. So the superpositions of mutually exclusive options are fundamentally unstable and they have a gravitational pull on each other and that there's some threshold of, of gravitational pull where it will then self-collapse. So as a superposition evolves and grows in complexity and, and sort of differentiates itself with all these different possibilities, it will naturally reach this limit. And so in the vacuum of space, a electron is probably not gonna reach this objective threshold for a long time. I mean, we're talking millions, maybe billions of years before the complexity of that electron superposition reaches the gravitational threshold. However, if you have a larger quantum system with a more complex superposition, which is splitting off much more quickly in the, into these mutually exclusive um, space-time geometries that are pulling on each other, then you're going to reach the objective threshold more quickly and you could potentially have a self-collapse in a time frame uh, that's more biologically relevant or occurring at, at a time scale that we're more familiar with or that might be um, within the domain of the time frames that we experience in our own lives. So another thing to consider here is this idea of if we didn't look at the moon, would the moon cease to exist? If the moon went into superposition and no one looked at it, would it cease to exist? Well, there's a couple answers here. If you were somehow able to make the entire moon into a superposition where everything was coherent, then perhaps the complexity would self-collapse at a rate fast enough that it wouldn't quite not exist, but there'd be like brief moments of the whole thing entering superposition. Of course, this is a preposterous scenario because what we also know is that there are very specific conditions by which superpositions are able to be sustained through time, and that requires a protective shield from the environment. So you need to create an internal quantum safe space, if you will, where these superpositions are able to be sustained at a macro scale and at a temporal scale that they can persist. So the moon is clearly not uh, meeting these requirements because all these little rock particles are independent and, and chaotically bumping into each other. There is no capacity within the collective of the moon to sustain a superposition. But what is it then? What is that difference? How do you make this? And so in biology, uh, Hameroff and Penrose talk about that there is a fundamental dichotomy between in simple terms, oil and water. Oil being nonpolar and water being polar, 
nonpolar, meaning that the the chemistry is is has a fully completed system of bonds where all of the atoms within your chemical are bonded to each other such that they're not looking for new interactions. However, polar molecules are seeking more interactions. So there's sort of this fundamental dichotomy between wanting to have environmental interactions and then resisting environmental interactions. And so Hameroff talks about how he thinks this is sort of the origins of life, is that you would have these chemical properties where you'd have nonpolar pockets forming and these places where there's nonpolar um, pockets, there's no environmental interactions. And so you're allowing superpositions to form more coherently. And then in the polar regions, you'd have all this environmental chaotic interaction. And so one example of this happening is in the phospholipid bilayer membrane and also in these things called micelles. And they're very similar to each other, but essentially you have these small molecules that have a polar component and a nonpolar component, such that all the polar components aggregate around the circumference or around the surface area, and then the nonpolar components coalesce into the center. And so this is sort of a basic motif of life. You have a nonpolar core, which is isolated from the environment, and then a protective layer on the outside, which is interacting. A micelle just has a single nonpolar core and then a polar outer sur circumference or, or sphere on the surface. And then a phospholipid bilayer membrane is sort of a natural extension of this where you have a layered sort of um, sphere where there's an inner lining of nonpolarity and an outer lining on both sides of polarity, which is interacting with the environment. And you can see this motif also occurring at the molecular level. And so I'll give sort of a classic example. And I've been a little bit vague on purpose, but here I'm gonna really lay it out for you. So there was this mystery where there was a benzene ring, but we didn't know it was a benzene ring back in the day. We just knew there's a certain number of carbons, certain number of hydrogens, and these benzene molecules had a lot of um, structural coherence and they were very strongly bound together and people hadn't figured out that it was a ring. Introduced the science Kekuli and he had this dream of the Ouroboros, this snake eating its own tail, and he famously woke up from this dream and said, voila, I believe the benzene molecule is actually a ring structure. And so you have a hexagon of six carbons and hydrogens connected around them. And that ring structure provides this pretty profound structural stability. And it's based on this you know, simple geometric pattern. And so what they discovered is that these benzene rings, which are nonpolar, they don't want to interact with their environment, there is an emergence of these delocalized electron clouds. And so this is really sort of the key point here that I'm making in this episode, 
is that you are already familiar with the wave function within chemistry. It is these electron clouds. It's a cloud of electrons that are delocalized electrons. The electrons should not and cannot be viewed as individuals, but instead the collective is modeled as a probabilistic distribution. It's a wave function, right? So the cloud is a wave function of many electrons wrapped up into this collective moment, this collective movement of all of the electrons together. And so in the benzene ring, you have single bond, double bond, single bond, double bond repeated in the circle, but you could also have the alternate bonding of double bond, single, double, single. And so there's a few different bond conformations that you can have. And in the electron cloud, you don't need to pick one or the other. The electrons enter into superpositions of all these different types of bond angles or bond um, patterns, and they're in superposition together. And these hexagons and pentagons that you find in chemistry have these very profound nonpolar properties. And so I wanna now draw your attention to a molecule and classic molecules in human chemistry are like dopamine, serotonin, uh, we, the list goes on, we could go through them, but a very common motif in these simple molecules is that you have a hexagon or a pentagon, and then you have a tail coming off of that molecule. And what's fascinating here, that geometric shape acts as a protective bubble where you can have delocalized electrons, and then the tail acts as a polar interactor. And so you basically have this interesting sort of microcosm of the dichotomy that we've been talking about in this series. So the tail, you could view it as this sort of digital input-output interface that wants to interact with the environment. And that geometric hexagon or pentagon is acting as sort of the onboard coherence area, the quantum computational area. So within a molecule, you have this digital input-output interface and this sort of local micro-quantum computational element. And you know, by having these two components, you have a much more dynamic, interesting molecule that is computing its own future, interacting with its environment. And through this model, you have a, a much more explanatory motif of how life might be utilizing these different properties that we've been talking about. And so what's important to note here is the environment is chaotic and destructive. It wants to destroy wave functions. It wants to measure things. And so how do we overcome this environmental pressure of chaos and of destruction? We utilize these properties of geometry. And it doesn't come for free. It had to evolve. Um, but we're looking for ways that chemistry is able to enable these wave functions within the wet, noisy, warm environment that we find. And there's now a bunch of experiments emerging that this is indeed possible. And it seems to be through these geometric properties. And some examples are 
um, of, of taking these hexagons and these pentagons is fullerene, graphite, these carbon nanotubules. Like we're starting to create um, using these geometric properties, we're starting to create materials that have these very unusual properties and we can use them potentially in our um, future technologies and engineering. But really the takeaway is that there is a great utility to creating these quantum safe spaces where you can sustain superpositions and sustain coherence. And one of the most classic examples in biology is photosynthesis. And there was a group um, at UC Berkeley, go Bears, uh, Graham Fleming's group, where they discovered that photosynthesis appears to be utilizing these coherent safe spaces of quantum mechanics where you have these proteins, they're called FMO proteins, and they're able to convert light into these um, energy beams that they can transfer between a network of proteins and there is a near 100% efficiency of transferring that energy between the proteins. And this solves a number of biological problems. But you would assume from a very classical quantum mechanics doesn't matter perspective that this would not be possible, that there would be environmental influence, there'd be a massive reduction in energy transfer because of the chaos um, of these environmental pressures to collapse and measure. So we have evidence um, that this is occurring and there's a growing number of examples in biology where there is an active effort on the part of biology to create and sustain these wave functions. And the idea here at a very simple level is that by creating and sustaining these wave functions, you allow quantum computation and coherence to overcome the chaotic pressures of the environment and even in these very simple, simple models, um, like Hameroff talking about the micelle, these really simple, you know, membranes of polar with nonpolar pockets, or even in molecules with just having these pentagons and hexagons creating quantum coherence, maybe you could reach self-collapse, maybe you could let a quantum computation evolve and reach its own conclusion without having this chaotic process enter. And this would be a way to sort of naturally build complexity and build a meaningful selection of future states instead of a random selection of future states. So this could be sort of a, a fundamental mechanism for how order is built in the universe. All right, so if we take these hexagons and these pentagons and we put them together, I talked about how you had these different bond angle patterns and the electron clouds are sort of oscillating between these different bond angle patterns. Well, when you put multiple benzene rings together, you can form these larger structures where now the electron clouds in each of those rings is now correlated with each other and they form these sort of dipole networks where the, the electron clouds of both of the rings are now coupled and they move together collectively. So you've now scaled up this property from just having a single ring having some quantum, you know, some quantum properties to now multiple rings sharing that cloud and having these quantum properties. And these are called van der Waal forces. And so if we just take this simple principle that you can have two rings 
touching each other, either directly connected, or I'll show you in a, in a future example, maybe even just through proximity with each other, these electron clouds can become shared. That is the fundamental crucial scaling property for how to create macroscopic wave functions and how to create macroscopic quantum computation, essentially. So that's really the fundamental here. So next up, we talked about molecules. Next up, we have proteins. And proteins are composed of amino acids. They're a bunch of molecules, a certain set of molecules, and they're connected in a string. And a protein is literally a linear connection of a bunch of these amino acids to each other. But after you have this linear sequence of amino acids, they then fold upon each other and they make these really complex patterns of folding. And this uh, structure, this geometric structure that emerges um, seems to give rise to the functionality of proteins. But how do they fold? How do proteins get assembled into these larger tertiary structures? And the answer here is that you get a core of nonpolar rings. So this is one model of how protein folding occurs, is that all of these aromatic rings, these, these rings that have these electron clouds, they coalesce at the core of the protein and then the polar parts, the more interactive parts of the protein, um, are pushed to the surface. So just like we talked about the simpler models of micelles forming with the nonpolar and polar parts with the nonpolar in the center, proteins have a nonpolar core at the center. And the idea is that this is a way that all these aromatic rings come into alignment with each other and some of them form right angles, some of them have a parallel connection to each other, or some of them are maybe um, T-shaped, or you know, there's different patterns of how these aromatic rings can come into contact with each other at the core, and that they sort of lock up, link up, not through chemical bonding, but through um, these electron clouds are now bonded with each other and shared. So they're kind of just pushed into these arrangements at the core. And so the idea here is that now at the core of your protein, you have these channels of delocalized electron clouds. And so one of the fundamental questions about proteins is very similar to the fundamental question about cells. The, the cell has a bunch of toxins and reward signals. How does it choose how to um, govern a response, right? It gets all these inputs, it has to make a response and it needs to make a coherent response, otherwise it's getting pulled in all these different directions. The protein has the same problem. A protein is composed of millions of atoms. How do you get these millions of atoms to behave collectively for one goal? The protein similarly has inputs coming in and it generates outputs. How does it choose that, that you know, output from all the inputs coming in? The solution is the same. So the solution is, Perhaps these channels, these cores of electron clouds create a single functional unit out of the protein. The protein no longer needs to be a diffusion process of something, you know, bumps into it here and then it kind of cascade effects and bumps into other places. Now you can have a coherent core 
that is able to get all these inputs and then form a single output for the protein. So the protein goes through these, these macroscopic conformational changes where the whole thing will move and go into a different alignment. How does it decide to do things like that? And so one answer is that there is a quantum coherent core at the center of the protein. So what this really means is there's a digital interface on the outside of the protein and a quantum computational core within every protein. And what is the evidence of this? Well, Stuart Kaufman has um, some pretty interesting models of how this, how this works or, or what are some of the, the outcomes of this model is that if you had just a chaotic local system that sort of has emergent properties, then you would expect to find patterns of like electrons being shot out here or there in sort of a more or less diffusion process, right? But what you really witness in a protein are these avalanches of electron transfers where the whole protein will sort of be silent and then shoot out a flow of electrons coherently all at the same time. So there seems to be a massive level of coordination within all of these electron flows within the protein. So you can imagine there's a bunch of electrical or electron interactions, and then this electron or electrical flow out of the protein, and it's not just like local diffusion here and there, but it's acting as this macro functional unit collectively. Okay, so we have one final scaling property here. So we talked about how these aromatic rings create electron clouds. You put some of these rings together and they form these more macroscopic electron clouds. Then you take a protein, the aromatic rings coalesce in the center, and you get channels of aromatic rings with electron clouds all connected to each other, forming a single coherent near instantaneous functional unit. The final step is in the microtubule. You have a bunch of proteins, tubulin proteins, and now all you have to do is plug together these channels between tubulin proteins. So why is the tubulin special? How is the tubulin unit designed to carry out its function? The function that is proposed is that there are aromatic ring channels through the center of the tubulin that are designed such that when they're bonded within the microtubule structure, these channels link up to the other channels of the tubulin. And that is sort of the primary design behind the tubulin. You put them in these cyclical patterns and the channels line up. And so early models of the orchestrated objective reduction was suggesting that each tubulin acted as a quantum bit or a qubit. Each tubulin had conformation A, conformation B, there's two states it could be in, and it goes into a superposition of conformation A, conformation B. But there was a lot of pushback, you know, realistically, because you cannot have conformation changes happening on this fast scale that would be required to, to carry out this quantum computation in that model because there's a lot of energy expenditure 
in a protein undergoing conformational changes. So the tubulin protein has these two primary conformations it can be in, but to switch between them is a, a massive energy expenditure and it wouldn't be efficient. So the more updated version of this model is that the quantum bit is actually a topological qubit where this whole channel of aromatic rings going around the microtubule is the quantum bit and the electrons are either in a dipole with electricity or electrons flowing in one direction or in the other direction. So yeah, it's, it's this way or it's that way. And it's in a quantum superposition of being in these two different flow states. And it's not just limited to a single tubulin, but it's a network. It's the topology of this electron flow through multiple tubulin. So if this is possible, then what this means is that we have scaled from beyond the protein. So now the protein itself is extended functionally beyond itself into these topological networks of other tubulin. And there's sort of this emergent or meta state built out of all of these tubulin together. And that is serving as the fundamental computational units of the microtubule. So next up, the problem is, or the question is, we talked about how quantum computation requires a digital interface phase and a quantum computation phase. Now the critical question is, are microtubules undergoing these two different major primary phases and how is this working? And so the solution is that there are these proteins called actin proteins and the model goes, and I'm not too familiar on the details of this, but the, the model goes that actin has two primary states, a liquid state and a gelatinous state. And the actin is able to rapidly change between the gel state and the liquid state. In the liquid state, it's polar, it allows interfaces to occur, and so the microtubule is opened up to digital interfacing. And then in the gel state, the microtubule is isolated and these superpositions are allowed to form and are allowed to spread throughout the network. So as the gel solidifies or as the actin solidifies into gel, all of the microtubules that are within the gel that have this connection can now go into that superposition state and these quantum bits can then be formed that extend across multiple tubulin and potentially across multiple microtubules by having um, these microtubule associated proteins, which are ways where these channels can sort of link up between microtubules even. So there's, there's a proposal that microtubules on their own have this natural connection and through these um, proteins linking them together, you can extend these topological quantum bits across different microtubules. And so it's in the gelatinous state and it forms this macroscopic quantum superposition, which is computing, quantum computing, the, the future. And then it releases it, goes into the liquid state, and then that computation becomes measured or undergoes a self-collapse and then becomes measured. And then through that measurement, you can then get the output of that quantum computation back into the cell. So then what is the input and output? What does that look like? 
Well, what Hameroff proposes is that this occurs primarily through calmodulin kinase 2. So this is the CAMK2 protein, and he lovingly calls it uh, a nanopoodle, but essentially it is this um, protein structure that comes in with a bunch of subunits, and it's able to sort of walk along or stamp onto the microtubule, and it actually is able to bind in a hexagonal pattern to six different tubulins simultaneously. And when it binds to it, it has the option to phosphorylate or not to phosphorylate that tubulin. And this is sort of a primary way where you add a phosphate group into your target. And, and that's one of the, the main ways that um, a lot of these protein cascades um, communicate with each other. So the CAMK2 comes in and it drops sort of a bite of information onto the microtubule. It binds to this hexagonal print and it phosphorylates or does not phosphorylate those six. That serves as a bite of information deposited or a bite of information extracted. And perhaps these occur at the same time. The input and the output are sort of blurred together into some simultaneous interaction. Um, but the idea is that in the liquid state of the actin, the microtubule is undergoing this digital interface with CAMK2 primarily, perhaps there's others. And this is the major input-output stage. And CAMK2 is involved in so many protein cascades. It really is sort of a hub of many protein cascades. And if you go look through your... Uh, biology textbooks or the scientific literature, you'll see that CAMK2 or, or other microtubule proteins are involved in, in almost any protein cascade. And you'll see that these cascades of proteins impinge upon the microtubule. And there is a, a way in which that information will make it into the microtubule. So it goes into the liquid state, it gets these CAMK2 imprints on it, it gets some information about what's going on in that part of the cell, enters a, a gel state with the actin, and then that information is propagated across the cell at near instantaneous or speed of sound speed through this quantum superposition of these electron dipoles in these channels. And then all that information gets integrated into the microtubules that are undergoing superposition together. And then the final step here is that there is then a self-collapse rate. And so Hameroff and Penrose propose that as the number of qubits or topological tubulins um, are inputted into the quantum computer, the quantum computer grows in size. And the more of these qubits are in the quantum computer, the faster it's going to evolve and reach this collapse moment and collapse back down through the, through the objective reduction of self-collapse and then produce an output. And they propose that when the self-collapse occurs, this is a moment of consciousness. And so this moment of consciousness occurs in the self-collapse and these microtubule networks are uniquely positioned to generate macroscopic complex superpositions to reach that self-collapse more quickly. And so as it reaches self-collapse, uh, these moments of consciousness are occurring and, and the moment of consciousness is sort of related to the computation that is occurring. So as you're computing some future goal state, 
there's an experience component tied into that wave function collapse. Um, of course, of course, of course, the connection to consciousness is somewhat speculative, right? And it's challenging, as we talked about in some previous episodes, to tie qualia or the subjective feeling of, of something, right? Like the hurt and the pain, the sensation of the color red. How do you tie that really to anything ever? And so it's not really specific to, to this model of consciousness, but it is fundamentally challenging to see how a subjective experience would get tied into this. But some of their arguments for consciousness are the fact that we have a certain speed of consciousness associated with our, our subjective experience might be explainable by this collapse rate. So the, the rate of the collapse of these you know, quantum computers and the microtubules is directly related to the speed at which we are experiencing life on, on some level. Um, and that our experience comes in a series of moments with every collapse of the wave function and that any disruption to this collapse or enhancement of this collapsing um, would therefore contribute to the speed of our experience or to the, the quality of our experience. And so some of the examples they give are anesthetics. Um, anesthetics go into tubulin and bind to tubulin in particular, and they go into the aromatic cores and they break up these channels. And so the pitch is that anesthetic molecules are nonpolar, they enter the core of the tubulin, and they go and they stop these van der Waals forces where the electrons become correlated and these electron clouds are spread out. By introducing the anesthetic molecule, it, it busts up that channel. And so when you lose consciousness from anesthetics, their pitch is that you have all these molecules going in and disrupting these, these communication lines within the, the microtubules, and then your consciousness starts getting disrupted, that quantum computation is going away, and the digital computation is preserved, but um, that wipes out your experience. Some other examples they give, which are maybe compelling, are like psychedelics or neurotransmitters, also bind into microtubules. So while there, there is definitely um, signaling going on at the synapse, there's also these somewhat unexplored um, binding of all these different molecules into microtubules directly and maybe messing with or enhancing these electron cloud channels, introducing some additional resonance. Um, and, and so, yeah, there's, there's a number of ways where, where serotonin or dopamine fluxes could actually be directly binding into these, these microtubules and directly impacting, you know, if the seat of consciousness is in these microtubule electron cloud lines, it'd be directly interacting with that on some level. In closing, I haven't talked explicitly about orchestration, but the idea here is that objective reduction is the collapse of the wave function through a self-collapse, through meeting this gravitational threshold. Orchestrated objective reduction is a biological orchestration of how the wave function evolves. So the orchestration is that digital input output that's created, right? And so the orchestration comes from the environment, it comes internally, and there's a lot to explore on what is the nature, the quality 
of this information that's being processed and what is being orchestrated and why. And so in future episodes, we'll explore brain activity on a larger scale, how do these different levels or scales interact, and us being very giant, slow creatures, we experience life at this very slow rate. How is the microtubule directly relating to our speed of experience? It seems like an important and open question that uh, still isn't answered in, in what we've talked about today. So more on that to come.